0: Why don't you grab your Bibles, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 13, we are continuing our series through this incredible book, we've been in here for the entire year and we certainly are endeavouring to have completed the study by the time we see through 2023 but there's still a lot more to go, would you read with me, I'm going to read the passage first and then pray, I'm going to do it back the front because I feel like we're going to read it and then need some prayer. So let's do that, let's launch in, and let's see what the Lord might have for us this morning. It says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I was waiting for the resounding amen. There's there's an interesting way to start, thank you Paul. Let's continue. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a two-edged sword. It's encouraging at times and uplifting. It's also convicting and it's able to lead us and guide us and correct us and recalibrate it us where we need that too lord we pray that you would use your scripture and this time through the anointing and the power of your holy spirit to do a work in our hearts come holy spirit and show us where we need whatever you have for us this morning give us listening ears to hear your voice we pray may your word go deep in our hearts for the glory of your name but that's our desire to see your name exalted in us and through us to see much made of you, to see your goodness and your grace lifted up as a banner that many might come to know you and to love you, that the greatness of your good news would be proclaimed through our lives, through our witness, through this church, through your people at this time. May your light shine in the midst of the darkness, and may the darkness never quench or overcome, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Now, it doesn't take long, does it, in the the culture that we live in, probably two seconds scrolling through a Facebook feed for those who are on social media, probably a couple of minutes watching the nightly news or reading the news from whatever news source that you might choose to subscribe to. But we live in a culture that loves and is centered around and seems to delight in dishonor. Inevitably, you'll see some sort of a rant about a political figure from the right, from the left, the ups, the downs, everything in the middle. I'm not sure who is worse than one another. It's like we're, we're striving to outdo one another with dishonour. It seems like, particularly in the social media world, it's almost as natural as breathing oxygen. We post a little rant about some sort of political issue and then post a picture of our chicken dinner just in the same breath, without even almost thinking about it. And it's not just politics, is it? I happened to be watching last night a particular Canberra local team playing rugby, watching the footy. I don't know if you saw the press conference after the footy. And there may or may not have been a few little dubious decisions made by the referee, who, of course, um, are not always the world's most popular figures. In fact, there's a great ad about referees. I won't even go there. I won't even open that one. But in this particular uh, press conference, a certain coach of a certain Canberra team decided to absolutely have a rant about the quality, not only of the referees, but refereeing in general. And it kind of struck me, you know, when was the last time you saw a press conference and the coach, and I'm sure there's probably some examples out there, but when when's the last time you saw that and a coach or the players, that took a moment to say, you know what, I just want to thank the referee. Like, He really did the best job and, you know, we just cheer him on because he's fantastic and I just want to uphold him and thank him for his commendable effort. It's removed, isn't it? It seems to be removed from our subconscious psyche as people. We live in this ongoing culture of, let's just call it dishonour, of political division, of resisting the resistors and... You know, if it's, if it's not enough for us to have our own political issues, I saw this week Donald Trump back in the front page news in our country. We don't have enough to complain about here, so we've decided again, as we approach the American elections, to complain about the American elections as well. You see, it, it is everywhere, and it's divided, it's left and right, it's divisions, it's disagreeing. And we've got to be caught up, uh, we, we've got to be careful as God's people that we don't get caught up in the midst of it. What is our response? That's what I love about a passage like this, because we've spent many months this year talking about the power of the gospel, you know, explaining it and, and unpacking it, and it's theologically rich and it's incredible. There's, there's so many aspects to it. But Paul does not want to finish this proclamation of the gospel, talking about its power to, to save and transform, without getting deep down into the nitty-gritty. He, he doesn't leave us the opportunity for the gospel just to stay in some sort of a theoretical, some kind of a, well, it's, it's just a knowledge that I have, it's a, it's a core belief. He's like, no, it's, it's, it's got to have some kind of a practical outworking. As Adam preached last Sunday, he's like, it it looks like something. You you can't pretend to say, well, I'm a a, a mad keen footy player or I love whatever sport it might be, was his analogy, and not have any evidence of that in your life. There's, There's some kind of a practical outflow in the way that we approach things. And here Paul is talking about a specific issue. And I know at times you read commentaries and, Sometimes, not all the time, but people like to kind of avoid the point or say, well, maybe it's only in certain contexts and situations, maybe it's only, I mean, Paul wasn't really talking about the, the issues that we find ourselves in. I mean, there was, there was no Donald Trump, there was no Anthony Albanese, there wasn't the political issues, you know, maybe he just wasn't aware of what was going to come. I mean, I would say this, Paul lived in a political environment which was much more antagonistic to the gospel, which was much more opposed to Christians, which was much more the level of persecution that he was writing and preaching the gospel in was like nothing we have seen in today's world and society. So Paul doesn't say, well, it's, it's just going to be this theoretical thing. He says, practically, there has to be this desire this heartfelt posture and position as believers. This is how the gospel outflows and outworks. One of the many ways in our lives is this picture of honor, an honor of authorities, whether they're good or bad, whether it's easy, whether it's hard. And I want you to note this. We read the passage in full because it's not just a throwaway line. It's not just an optional extra. He says, well... If you get to this, you know, here's the list of things to do, but, you know, if it kind of happens to fit in with your schedule. It's not an optional extra. It's not a conditional statement. There's nothing in here that I can read that says, well, honour your government, honour authorities, honour referee, whatever it is, only if they've made all the right choices. Only if they've been able to accomplish and fulfil every one of your desire and you align 100% 100% politically with them, then there is a case for honour. It's not a throwaway, it's not an optional extra, it's not a conditional statement, it's not when you agree with them. There is this posture as believers in the environment and in every environment we find ourselves in. I mean, the great example in the Old Testament, it's, it's Daniel, isn't it? And he is a man, he's, he's, he's uprooted, he's ripped out, of his homeland, of his surroundings, of everything he's familiar with, and he's placed in the middle of what at that time was the most godless, wicked empire on the planet. They were known for their barbarity. They were known for everything other than what is godly and good. And yet God placed him there. And it was him and a couple other guys that we read about, possibly a few others as well, who literally were such a force for good because of how they lived their lives, that it turned the nation on their head. And Nebuchadnezzar, he gives this incredible proclamation of his testimony through just a handful of small righteous people. And so I want to say there, there is a tension and there's a wrestling through here and I'd love to say this one I've got down pat, I'm all over this. But if there's anything in the book of Romans that is a struggle and a challenge, this would be right up there for me. How do we live honourably in a dishonourable world? How do we give respect when, like poor old Ricky Stewart, everything in the game's gone wrong and it's all someone else's fault, or so we believe. <laughs> Even at times, perhaps, that might be justified. It's all that. Well, hang on a sec. How, how do we do this? How, what's, the, what's the practical outworking here? And before we look at what it does mean, let's just, let's just look at what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we're supposed to be some sort of wallflowers, we're doormats, we just compromise and go along with whatever society says. It doesn't. One of the things that my family and I did when we were in Rome recently is we did a tour of the Roman catacombs. Been to Rome before, but we'd never had the opportunity to do that. And I would strongly encourage you to do it. It was an amazing tour and we had a tour guide at the time who not only knew his stuff but he was clearly a person of faith and you could see how moved and he said openly he said I've done this tour thousands of times in my life but I never stopped just being impacted by the history that's here 2000 years of christian history the earliest christians in rome who were both buried there but then also, you know, often would gather in these places. There's the early symbols of Christian faith that are marked on the walls. There's evidence of old chapels where they used to gather to, to pray and to worship the Lord and, in fact, continue to do so. One of the tours you could do in the catacombs that we were in is a worship tour. So you could go through and worship in these places and read Scripture and it kind of brings it to life. It does. When you kind of see it in the flesh... But the thing that struck me about that was not just there was 2,000 years of Christian history, but that this was the place that was full of the earliest Roman Christian martyrs. And you hear some of their stories. You hear how they did not compromise. They lived in a wicked, godless empire, and yet they stood strong and firm in their faith, and they lost their lives as a result of it. And Paul himself, he would go on. We believe in church history. It's not in scripture, but church history tells us that he was beheaded and he was a Christian martyr in Rome. That's how his life ended. So I want us to understand as we talk about this, we're not talking about compromise. We're not talking about, well, we've just got to go along with the society. There is a place and there is a time for standing up and being counted. There is. We talked about Daniel and those moments. I mean, he, he lived in this place where he honoured King Nebuchadnezzar. He did. He, he was a part of that. But there was moments right from the beginning. I said, we, want, we will not compromise ourselves with the food we eat. We will not compromise ourselves with the statues that we bow down to. There, there is those kind of moments. i reminded a New Testament example of Acts 4. as The uh, earliest disciples are persecuted and they're told, you, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus. And they say, well, look, I'm sorry. There's many things we can do, but we cannot do that. And we will not stop proclaiming the name of Christ. So there is is those moments. There absolutely is. There's times where this passage that Paul is talking about needs to be read and obeyed in light with our allegiance to Christ. And there are gospel issues where we cannot and should not and I pray, Lord willing, will not compromise. What I would say is that these, as we read through scriptures, these are, if you like, in some ways, the exception. Daniel lives in this empire. There's those few moments, but his larger posture was a posture of honor. I'm here to learn. I'm here to be a part of the empire. I'm here to do what I can. I'm here to be a force for good in the world, but not of the... That that was his default position. And if there's exceptions that come along, well, I'm still going to... And, and you see, for example, when Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he orders all of the wise men, not just Daniel and his men, to be killed. And he comes in this, this, this posture of, of, uh, of honour to the king. Oh, king, you know, just just hang on a moment. I believe God can make a way here. He speaks up for the issue, and not only is his life preserved, but he intentionally preserves the life of all of those around him because of his action and his willingness to speak up, but he does it with this attitude of humility. He does it with this attitude of honour. And I would say, if I'm honest, so often our default is the opposite. That our default position as society and often in the church is to be caught up in this picture of dishonour. That 99% of the time we're like very happy to have a little bit of a spout on social media, to say things, to be a part of the general culture, and then the odd moment where maybe a political person gets into power that we agree with, or there's a decision made that we you know, think is the right decision to be made. Then we can quickly jump on board with a sense of, isn't this wonderful, God is great, and God is good. So I want to suggest that it should be the other way around. That essentially what Paul is encouraging us here is he is saying, wherever you find yourself, whatever you face, whenever you can, this is your default. You are in the world, you're not of the world, you are in the world to be a forceful, that that is your default position. Honor the authorities, do what you can to be a bringer of life and light and goodness. Now, there's two points here that I want to kind of unpack. So, as I said, we kind of looked at the scripture. It's, in many ways, it's, it's clear. Okay, that's, that's what he says. I'd love to say there's some wiggle room here, and we can kind of look at the, the intricacies of the, the, uh, the Greek, and we can kind of sneak our way out around the back door and not really apply what Paul's saying. I would suggest there isn't. There isn't any wiggle room in here. Paul was saying, unless it's a gospel issue, unless it affects in some way your witness, unless you're being coerced to sin against God, following Jesus includes submitting to, praying for, upholding, blessing, all authority. That's the default position. So that in my mind is clear. What I want to spend a few moments focusing on is trying to help ourselves to understand why. Why is that important? Why is that not so much the message of the gospel, but the means of the gospel. What does what that, what is that actually, Why does it matter? And I'm going to give us two reasons. Number one, it points us towards a greater truth. Number one. You see, what we need to realize with this whole passage of Scripture and this point that Paul is trying to make is that it's a point that's made in a broader context. And if you've got your Bibles, just come to the end of chapter 12, because this is following along. It's a specific example, but it's really this, this theme that Paul has been unpacking, this bigger picture. And in this bigger picture, we're going to see a context and a call. So let me just pick a few, a few verses out of chapter 12. Verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So he's saying this: there's an environment, there's a context of persecution. I, I, I know, I'm not removed from the fact that you are in a place where there is persecution. He says in verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So he's not saying, just forget about it, just turn it, he's, he's saying, no, there's, there's a bigger picture, there's a context. He's saying, never avenge yourself Leave it to God. Don't seek to take your own vengeance. Don't be so consumed and driven. That's what the world does. But there's another way. There's another method. There's another call for the Christians. Leave it to God. Don't burden yourself with that. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20. It says, in fact, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. When was the last time you took your enemy out to dinner? Just ask him. Whoever that is, call him up on the phone. Hey, what are you doing tonight? Let's go get some burgers. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's just unpack. There's a context and a call. He's, he's not glossing over the fact that there is evil. He's saying, I recognize and I realize that you live in an evil age, in an evil empire. There's, there's moments where there is persecution. There's moments where everything within you wants to get vengeance because you've been wronged. The stuff that's happened. There is an evil empire. There is evil, it's an evil, there is evil around us. Now, it'd be nice to think that was just 2,000 years ago. Everything's happy now. There's no evil around us. But not that most of us need a reminder. I, I went um, just yesterday, actually, to see this, this movie, The Sound of Freedom. I don't know if you guys have, have had a chance to see that. It's just at the movies in Australia. I know it's been out in the US some um, a few months ago, it was. But it's, it's this movie about human trafficking. And, in fact, I took to the movie my eldest, eldest daughter... And I was prepping her and preparing her. I'm like, it's going to be full-on. It's going to be pretty heart-wrenching. Like, I just want to make you aware of some of the issues so that you go in with an open mind, so that you're a little bit prepared. Well, she, she turned towards me, you know, three-quarters of the way through the movie. She was doing all right. And she says, Dad, pull yourself together. You're embarrassing me here. This is, this is terrible. But it, uh, it hit me. I did not bring enough tissues. Um... And the statistics at the end, you know, this, the, the nature of human trafficking, I mean, it says all these stats on the, on the film at the end, it's $150 billion a year industry. There's more, more slaves today than there was at any time in history. I mean, it's obviously focused on the US, it talks about the US, and I'm sure that Australia's not much better, is the, the, these are the top destinations for human trafficking, particularly for child sex trafficking. Like, it just, there's something about that that just gripped my heart with, you know, and I, honestly, I just came out feeling broken. Like, what a, what a broken, we're just so aware of the evil around us. And without Christ, would not have, to be honest, any, any hope. But that is part of the point of the movie. I think they could probably emphasize it a bit more, is that we can make a difference. We can. So not just in that issue, but, but this, this, is the, this goes to the heart, really, of not just the gospel itself, but the context of the gospel. And Paul is saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is a context of darkness. There is. We don't often need to be reminded of it, but so, sometimes, like seeing that movie, we do, just because it kind of shakes us up. There is, there's darkness. But that was always the reality of the gospel coming as light in the midst of the darkness. As John so powerfully proclaims, as he brings his gospel, he talks about the light has come in. We've begun the service, I, I, the service with this passage: arise and shine, for your light has come. Light has come in the midst of the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. The gospel, that is the call of the gospel, is to shine as light in darkness. That's the context. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How? Well, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In the midst of hopelessness, there's hope. In the midst of pain, there is a healer. In the midst of injustice, when our hearts are so broken, we remember, there is a righteous judge who's coming back to put things right. In the midst of sin, the sinfulness of human depravity that's not just out there, it's in here. We've been talking about that all year. There is a Savior who came to save and rescue and redeem me and you and all of us together. So this is the picture that he's painting. He's saying, There's, I, I, I'm not belittling the darkness that's around you. I'm not belittling the evil. It is an evil place, but here is your mission. Your mission is to bring light. So, Romans 13, we said this, and, and I love this. He says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, incur judgment. See, the point is this there's a context and there's a call. He's saying this the gospel is not a message of resistance. Christ did not come into the world and say, resist, resist, resist. He came into the world not to condemn, but to save. See, the context of the gospel is not resistance, it's redemption. He comes into the midst of it and puts what is wrong right. He comes into the midst of the darkness to shine the light, a light that cannot overcome That darkness. So it's point one. I know it's a very long, elaborated point, but it points us to this greater truth, to this bigger picture, to a context and a call of the gospel. That is what we're called to do, to come, to live in the midst of the darkness, to be in and not of, to be the light in the midst of an ever-darkening world. How much light are we bringing? Let's be honest. Let's just look at this for a moment. How often when we are persecuted is our first response to bless. Here's the moment to bless someone. How often when we are wronged is our first response, I'm going to keep no record of that wrongs. You are forgiven and released. I'm leaving it to God. How often, as I said already, is our first response When someone comes across our path, and he uses words as strong as, they are our enemy. They disagree with us in every way they've done. How often is our first response, I want to love you. Can I buy you a drink? Can we sit down and have a meal? Wherever you find yourself, whatever you face, whenever you can, there is this heart redemption we're looking for those moments to bring light now it's an interesting aside here it's not really the message I think I've preached on this another times but he talks about here let me have a look at it he says those who resist will incur judgment and then he goes on in verse 3 and he says do what is good and then you will receive his and this is talking about earthly uh, rulers his approval There's there's this kind of dualistic tension here. He's talking about there is this call to be light and salt in the world. And one of the ways we do this is through honor. And honor does two things. It opens up natural favor, but also, which says at least in the negative, it will avoid the resistance of the Lord. He's saying if, if that is your heart, not only in the natural, but in the spiritual, there is divine resistance, I think sometimes we're wondering in our lives, we're like, Lord, there's not just this release of grace. Sometimes we're crying out, Lord, I don't understand why I cannot move forward in this area or that area. And sometimes it's because of our attitude that we're fighting against authority. Maybe not his authority, but the authority that he has put in our lives. There is this biblical principle of honor. In the natural, as in the spiritual, so often these two are connected. Let me just give you this. It's a silly example, but I remembered it this week. It's, it's the principle of honour flowing just in the natural. I had, uh, <clears throat> when I first got my licence, I was a, um, a hot-headed, uh, feral teenager that should never probably have been left, you know, given the keys to drive any sort of vehicle. But I rode off my first car within three days. It took me. I got the keys, I decided I can, you know, be a rally driver. Went up in the mountains, made it around about two dirt bends, lost control, rolled the car, wrote the car off. I was fine, the car not so much. In fact, I went on to uh, go through three cars in the first 12 months. I think the interesting question is why on earth my parents continued to let me drive any kind of vehicle. But I was, I was a, a hot-headed, terrible driver, I'm just being honest, back in my you know, years of misspent teenage youth, and I used to have these moments driving the, uh, the road, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but Canberra, we've got roundabouts, lots of roundabouts, and these big roundabouts in particular, they go from becoming roundabouts to straighten throughs, you know what I mean? Like the mission becomes, as a little little teenage driver in this car, how directly... I can make this transition through the roundabout. So one of these mornings, there's no cars around, I did this incredible straight and through. Like it was majestic and magnificent to have witnessed for everybody except for the police officer who was standing just on the other side of the roundabout. So his lights went on and he pulled me over and I had this conversation and I'm just being honest, I was rude, I was arrogant, I was everything you don't want your teenage son to be. And he said, you know, what do you think that was? And I said, oh, well, I thought it was a great piece of driving. <laughs> Straight and through, it was fantastic. Um, he wasn't as impressed and um, I, in my rebellious youth, you know, something just rose up in me and I, and, I don't, and I just said something along the lines of, I said, sir, surely you've got better things to do with your time. <laughs> I mean, I pay your taxes and I don't know what I said, but it was not, it was not good or helpful. And this is a true story. The police officer looked at me and he said, well, son, you know, I was going to give you a fine. But he said, actually, technically, you went over the lines as you went into the roundabout and out of the roundabout. So a few troubles, I'm going to give you two fines. I'm going to double it. And so he did. He gave me two fines. And although I said, oh, I'm going to appeal this, I'm going to take it to court. And I paid the fine twice, every cent. Fast forward probably four or five years, I had a similar moment where I was driving in the car and this time I was doing all sorts of things that that weren't great. I was drinking a coffee in one hand and I quickly just, I'm pretty good with my phone normally, to be honest, but I just glanced down at the phone, went a little bit over the lines, you know, and it was not a great piece of driving. But ended up on the other side, it's probably the same police officer to be honest, but there was a police officer, lights on. He pulls me over. And I had that moment again. I'm like, oh, this is so unfair. I'm so harshly done. I'm so much a better driver. But we rolled down the window. What what do you call that? And I felt that moment. Like, no, no. I said, look, sir, honestly, I just want to say I'm so sorry. Like, I'm completely in the wrong. You were in the right. And just thank you for the amazing job that you're doing. I love the police force. I just want to... (laughs) True story. He looked at me, and he's like, he's like, well, son, I can see you've learnt your lesson, so don't worry about it. Fine. You just go and have a nice day. <laughs> True story. You should let, let me go. No consequences at all. But there is this principle of honour in our lives that does it, has this capacity to provide a resistance. So often the proving ground, like Joseph, we talk about, well, the Lord puts us in wilderness seasons, but often it's wilderness in the midst of... The affairs of this life how how will someone respond to the authority that is around them and as we learn to honor the authority it releases things both in the natural and in the spiritual wherever you find yourself whatever you face whatever you can our heart is for honor because it goes to the heart of the gospel very quickly there's a second thing so it points us to a greater truth Number two, it proclaims a greater kingdom. Now, you've got to see this link in here. He says, Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So there is this profound declaration that as you show honor to authorities, when you do and as you do, you're recognizing a higher and greater kingdom. All authority is given from God. I mean, that's a struggle, isn't it, when authority is not recognized in our eyes as something that exhibits any form of godliness. And so the point here is simply this. I think we, we understand this theoretically, but so often we fail to live this out. Like if I was to say, we are a part of another kingdom, most of us would say, hopefully theologically on some level, we're like, yes, we understand. Jesus said the kingdom is here, that he came to proclaim a kingdom, not just salvation, but this lordship, that there's a, a new age that has dawned, that there's a kingdom like no other that has broken through, a kingdom that waged wars on the powers of darkness, taking captivity captive, delivering sons and daughters, this kingdom that is an invitation into his reign and rule. I think we would say on some level, at least, yes, Well, we, we understand that. But if I'm concerned about this, uh, us missing this first reality as believers, this picture of a greater truth and a greater picture, I'm even more concerned by what I see and continue to see and seems to be escalating about this second point of which kingdom is the kingdom that we actually give our allegiance and our authority to. If I'm concerned about the first, I'm even more concerned about the second, these, these pushes that we see throughout the world, and perhaps it's, it's greater overseas than it is here, but this kind of sense of Christian nationalism, this picture of what we're, we're trying to build some kind of an earthly kingdom. But somehow our our greatest hopes, our greatest desires, our greatest motivations are all to do with earthly temporal thing with, with changing the laws of the land, with, with somehow building some sort of a Christian nation again. And I understand that the, the West is going through this, this transition away from what um, theologically and sociologically we call Christendom, this period where, where Christianity was kind of ingrained with, intertwined with, or at least the foundation for empires around the world. And we're now in this, this place where there's a secular government. And so there's this tension. How do we do this well? What, what, what should be our passion and our desire? And I want to say it's, it's not to be completely removed from the affairs of this world. As we said already, there is a time and a place to speak out about issues. There is a conscience and intention that we should have to vote and to prayerfully consider the decisions we, we should have our say. But that should never be our fundamental driving passion. We are citizens of another kingdom. Can I read this? And I I think I, interestingly, I read this about two years ago, and we'll finish with this, so I don't know if there's someone who wants to come out. But these are words that were written by John Piper, and he wrote it actually in the last... Um, American election cycle. So forgive the Americanism of this, but it struck me so much then, and I think our American friends were here last time as well. Probably thinks we read this every single week. (laughs) It's like, you haven't moved on two years, he's still reading the same. As I always say, good good sermon illustrations, they're not told they're uh, developed, they're... What's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, move on. So he says this, in a call for us as believers to have our eyes on what for us should be the prize. And it's specifically written to pastors, but it applies to all of us. This is his words. May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that the West collapses, first anarchy, then tyranny from the right or the left imagine religious freedom is gone what remains for christians is fines prison exile martyrdom then ask yourself this has my preaching been developing real radical christians christians who can sing on the scaffold let goods and kindred go this mortal life also their body they may kill but god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews ten thirty four, who said, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you know that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake, and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, their reward is great in heaven. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? Are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown them that they're sojourners and exiles and that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics, the systems of this world? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is preserving America, say Australia, and all its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without anything else? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time are people who have the aroma of another world, a kingdom with another king? So my call to us is this, in a, a world where the default is, it just is, This society of dishonour, it's the the rant on Facebook, it's the us versus them, it's the resisting, it's the attack, it's hate your enemies and make sure they know just how much you hate them. How can we be otherworldly? How can we live as light in the darkness? Well, there's few things as powerful as this, to show honour, especially when it's not due. To love, even when you're hated in response. Don't look to resist, look to redeem. Don't look to curse, look to bless. Don't seek revenge. Let him take care of that. And let us take care of our call, which is to preach and proclaim the good news. Amen? Why don't you close your eyes. And pray for us. I want to give the Lord a bit of space and room as we bring this to a close. I want to ask you honestly, what is your default? Is it blessing or is it cursing? Is it honor? Is that, is that where you go to? Especially when you've just seen a rugby league game and the refs made all the wrong choices? And there's politicians there who continue to make decisions that you feel Undermine the very core and fabric of what you believe and who you are? Is it honour? Is it dishonour? We're not called to be overcome with the evils around They're there, they're present. But there is another way. The call is to overcome evil with good. It's to be light in the midst of the darkness. I want to ask you specifically, is there someone right now Lord, we pray that if there is, you'd bring this person to mind. So someone that you know that you are struggling right now to honor. It could be a government official, it could be a parent, it could be a boss, it could be a husband or a wife, someone in your family, someone with differing views. Jesus was serious enough, Matthew 5, slightly different context, but he says this, if you come to worship and you know there's an issue between you and a brother, he's like, stop right where you are. Do not move a moment, but go, go and deal with that first. And then come and bring your offering to the Lord. Like it's that serious and that significant. It's not the optional extra. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy, I'm not saying it's always comfortable, I'm not saying we always want to do it, but I am saying for the believer, there's a higher call. Christ is our example, and the only people that can do it are the Christians, because it's only us who can love the way that Christ has loved us. It's only believers who can serve the way that Christ has served us. Bending down to wash their feet. It's only the believers who can forgive. Because we know what it is to be forgiven of a debt we could never repay. How could we not extend that forgiveness to others? Why would we want to hang on in the light of what we've been forgiven from? We can show honor because we know what it is to be shown honor, to be loved, to be crowned with righteousness. What a gift it is that we can then go and honor others, especially when they do not deserve it. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would challenge our hearts if there's areas that need to be challenged that you would convict each and every one of us here. Thank you that there's no condemnation. There's not a moment for for shame, but it is a moment to do business with you. And I pray, Lord, that there's, there'd not be one of us here who does not at least ask you, Lord, how can I live this out? How can I show honor? How can I choose to forgive? How can I Love my enemies in a way that is all about your redemption, in a way that brings light, lets your light shine in the midst of the darkness. And help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, for your glory, King Jesus.